Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. The COVID-19 pandemic is casting many shadows. For many individuals and families, livelihoods have been snatched away. And while Australia led the world in providing income support in 2020, This year, the response has been far more patchy, with impacts that are hard felt and that will leave deep scars for many for years to come. Violence against women has been described as the shadow pandemic that has accompanied COVID-19. There are other shadows too, and one has become increasingly obvious, but was given little attention initially, and that is the impact on children. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, produced by policyforum.net here at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. The Crawford School is Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. And don't forget to check out our degree programs and the range of short courses that we offer at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. And I'm here today with my partner in pod, Anna Greta Hunter. Hi, Anna Greta. Hi, Sharon. It's good to be with you again. I'm Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and I'm the Human Futures Fellow with the College of Health and Medicine here at ANU. It's good to be talking about this really important subject today. It is, Anna Greta. I mean, this is a topic that's very close to my heart and one that is starting to get some attention that I don't think has had sufficient attention over the past 18 months. Absolutely. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School, and much of my research focuses on social policy for children. So as I said, this is a topic that I'm really keen to discuss. When the coronavirus swept the world in 2020, one small blessing seemed to be that children were not becoming ill. It was a virus that seemed to impact mostly on the elderly. The Delta variant has changed that, and children, including young children, are much more susceptible. And while there has been assurance that children appear to be less likely to become very ill or to die from the Delta variant, children are vulnerable, and the long-term health and developmental impacts are not yet clear. And beyond the disturbing issue of children now catching the Delta variant, there are ongoing problems of the impacts of COVID-19 on mental health, safety, poverty and well-being. And we just want to note here that this episode does touch on some fairly confronting subject matter. If this discussion raises any issues for you, we've left links to support services in the notes around this episode, and you'll find those on our website. As with much of the country, we're working from home at the moment, and that means we don't have access to our usual studio. So our audio today might not be as clear as we'd like it to be or as it usually is. We're working to make our home set up as high quality as possible, but in the meantime, we really appreciate your patience around this if the audio does sound a little below par. Now, remarkably, in 2020, through increases in working age social security payments, many children were prevented from falling into poverty in Australia as their families received coronavirus supplements. Those supplements ended in March 2021, with thousands of children being plunged back into poverty. And this is from a pre-COVID situation where, in this very wealthy country, one in six children lived in income poverty. 
We have, prior to the pandemic and again early this year, taken policy decisions in Australia that permit children to live in poverty. And beyond this, we see a range of challenges in Australia that were there prior to the pandemic, particularly in regard to child safety, as was revealed by the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, but also through ongoing challenges in child protection systems across Australia. Prior to the pandemic, we had serious challenges in supporting the mental health of children and young people, and that has been exacerbated. Recent research by the Black Dog Institute and Mission Australia found that amongst 15 to 19-year-olds, one in four are in psychological distress, and that number is one in three amongst girls. So we've got some real challenges that existed prior to the pandemic and have been deepened. And today we're talking with two leading practitioners and thinkers to help us work through some of these really complex issues, where we were prior to COVID-19, what has been the impact of the pandemic on children, and where can we go into the future? Anna Greta, do you want to introduce our guests? Yes, of course, Sharon. We've got two fabulous people joining us today to talk about this really important topic. Karen Gornson is a parent, infant and child psychiatrist who's based in Victoria. Karen has extensive experience in clinical settings working with very young children and their families, and she's currently undertaking primarily medical legal work in child protection matters and abuse law, providing child-focused recommendations to the court. And beside Karen is Tim Moore. Tim, after a decade working with young children and young people and families, Tim moved into academia in 2005 to better understand children's lives and the best ways to support them and their families, particularly during periods of adversity. He's now Associate Professor at the University of South Australia and he's Deputy Director of the Australian Centre for Child Protection at the University of South Australia. Karen, thank you for joining us. Hello, thank you for having me. And Tim, thank you. Great to have you here. Yes, amazing. Tim, can we start with you? Your work over the past, I think it's nearly two decades, has focused on understanding children's lives, particularly in times of adversity, and how we can best support them and their families. If you think about the kinds of challenges that children talked to you about prior to the pandemic, what kinds of things were you hearing then? Yeah, so I'll probably start off by saying that uh, children and young people often tell us that they're, you know, reasonably happy, safe and well, um, but that there are, for particular groups of children and young people, life prior to COVID was, was still quite a bit of a struggle. You know, we know that a lot of children and young people in Australia um, experience poverty, for example. Um, we know that kids in those scenarios... Um, as you would know from your work, um, Sharon, often feel quite feel the the impacts of poverty quite acutely. You know, we know from uh, just recent uh, polls and the like from from Mission Australia and the other and others that um, you know a lot of these children, and young people report that they they often miss out on on meals and the like, that they miss out on things that are important to them, like holidays with their family and the like, and not being able to go out with with friends. Um, we know that in Australia, children, young people are still experiencing significant uh, amounts of abuse and neglect, um, with about 3% of children, Australian children, coming to the, the notice of, of child protection and having some sort of engagement. And we know that, that many of the children where that intervention occurs are placed in out-of-home care. And unfortunately, we've seen over the last 10 years that the amount of time that these children, young people are in care is uh, extending significantly. So I think... Um, in the last couple of years, we've seen that uh, the, the rates of young people being in care for more than two years has, has almost quadrupled. So, you know, there's a whole lot of issues that, that children and young people are, are experiencing um, and that those impacts can be profound. You know, in the area of education, for example, we know that kids from disadvantaged backgrounds, you know, are often two or three years behind their peers because of the stress and strain of everyday um, experiences, but also because, you know, they don't necessarily have the access to resources and supports that, that other children and young people do. So although most children and young people are, are doing well, there are groups within the community who really haven't had that fair go for some time, and that was prior to COVID, which I think, you know, has been exacerbated over, over time. 
And Tim, just continuing to think about the pre-COVID situation, mm. for those groups that you've identified where that, who were who were really struggling, how would you assess the the policy responses? You know, do you think before COVID we had the policy frameworks in place to support those children and their families? I think that there's been a, a couple of things that that have kept us from really appropriately responding to these children and young people. We do, you know, there's a whole range of different policies and plans that, that are out there. But interestingly, um, some colleagues and I did some some work in the last few years for an ARC project where we analysed policy documents and, and practice frameworks and the like um, to see whether or not children's happiness, wellbeing, um, their children's rights and uh, and things that are important to children were ingrained in those policies. And although there was rhetoric around you know, wanting to support children um, in new ways and be more responsive to their needs. Really, when we analysed those uh, frameworks, there really wasn't a lot of strategy in there as to how we might might deal with them, let alone recognise their, their needs to participate, to have some control over their lives and to really be part of the solutions that we find. So, yes, there's a whole lot of work that's being done in the children's space, primarily in education and health, uh, but not necessarily addressing some of those uh, forces that are entrenching children in poverty and disadvantage in social isolation and the like. Karen, you work as a psychiatrist uh, and you're working with quite young children. We obviously don't want you to talk about particular cases, but I w- wonder if you could give us a sense of what the situation was like for children's mental health prior to the pandemic. Um, what sorts of themes would you would you be seeing in clinical practice? So. In the last 20 years, I've worked in child and youth mental health services and I've also worked in private practice um, with talking with people over a number of years sometimes in in a therapeutic way. And I guess in some ways there's a bit of a parallel process going on with the um, distress in the health system at the moment that's been there throughout my career really that children haven't been able to access timely effective mental health care um, and there's always been a waiting list. And I I chose to specialise in the youngest children because I'd spent time listening to people about their experiences and decided that I'd like to try to help shift to a different trajectory for people's lives. And I guess my training has been in very much how to understand children and to observe them closely, to listen to them, to help understand the meaning of their behaviour um, and through that, there's a storytelling aspect across the generations. And a lot of the work that I do is trying to help people keep children in sight and mind um, and reduce stigma. And I guess, you know, winding back over time, I think things have really been getting worse. Um, as Tim was saying, there's a lot of children who have unmet needs. And I guess I've seen, um, I guess the threshold for people being able to access mental health care has increased. Um, so typically um, they might be at an ex- extreme crisis point and it's occurring at a younger age, so children under the age of 10. Um, and a lot of these children have had multiple disruptions to their caregiving expectations. They've lived with a lot of uncertainty. They haven't been enjoying life. They haven't been connecting with um, peers or family or themselves. Um and they may not have had a sense of belonging. So I guess what I've seen really with the pandemic is an exacerbation of all of the difficulties and just the distress across the workforce that anyone who works with children and families and is sort of connecting empathically is just seeing and hearing about a lot of distress. They're really important things for us to be talking about at this point, I think. If we unpack that a little bit further beyond the individual experience, what sort of factors are lying behind the mental health challenges that face so many of our children? And how, how, do our, how does our health system really help us to contend with those, those bigger systemic challenges? I guess that because of the area that I focused in, um, most of the children have had multiple adverse life events. So they've experienced some type of bereavement or loss of a significant caregiver. They have been exposed to family violence, they may have been injured directly, non-accidental injury, there may have been involvement with their family members in multiple courts, so intervention orders, family law matters, child protection matters, criminal matters. So 
they're usually living with a huge amount of stress and they're often in poverty. So they may not be getting their basic needs met. They may have disengaged from education. They usually haven't had a thorough multidisciplinary assessment um, of their needs and they may have had kind of a, a scattergun approach to different services trying to support their family over time, over generations. Their difficulties have kind of got progressively worse over time because they haven't had the help that their family needed. And often they've had experiences of racism as well and other types of discrimination. Tim, I think that they takes us to some issues or, or connects us to some issues that you've done quite a lot of work on and, and that's around child safety. And this is such a critical but such a complex mm-hmm. issue. And I think, you know, we, we see a, a sort of a thread of the narrative where there's a real sense of risk about safety that means that so many children are kept from being in and moving around their communities. They're kept from being part of their communities um, because of the the risks that their parents perceive. And we also often see within the media this real anxiety um, about children's safety, which may or may not be grounded Mm. in the evidence. And then, of course, on the other hand, we've also seen some really shocking cases of children who have been abused, particularly in institutional settings where they should have been cared for. Now, a lot of your work has been around creating child-safe organisations. How do we create both institutions but also societies more broadly that are safe for children but are also inclusive of children? Yeah. Can I just jump back a little bit and and sort of follow on from Karen in regards to emotional safety? You know, one thing that I know, Sharon, um, one of the first projects that I heard um, from you, you know, 20 years ago was was looking at children's uh, sense of safety within communities. And we have, were hearing similar things from children, young people who experienced homelessness or were in families where there was mental health or drug or alcohol issues or the like. And a lot of children, when, when we unpacked it, they're, they stress a whole range of factors that were going on in their families and communities that really impacted on their sense of safety within the world. When we asked them what what things were most important to them, they talked about relationships with you know trusted caregivers. So in the psych area, that's you know attachments about children knowing that there's someone um, who's there to protect them and support them in the life. That their their sense of safety was um, was really strengthened when there was some stability and familiarity when they knew what was going to happen next and that they could preempt things and and you know, put in place um, some protections for themselves if, if need be, that they felt safe when they had a, enough information, when they understood what was going on around them, when they felt valued, when they felt respected, that their views were appreciated and that they had some agency control over their lives. Um, so it's kind of interesting reflecting back on some of those that early work that we did with children and young people within the COVID space and going, actually, you know, Things like stability and predictability are, are out the door now. A lot of children aren't, aren't being able to say, I know what's going on. I know when this is all going to be over. I know that things are going to get better later in life. And so as a result, I think children and young people are experiencing, you know, quite a lot of distress and anxiety as a result of that. When we take it broader and think about um, child safe organizations and the like, you know, I think there's been a real opportunity to think about how we can protect children and young people from things like institutional child sexual abuse and the like. But I think we probably missed out on thinking about how we create institutions, communities and society that really places children's emotional and physical safety and relational safety um, within that context. So in regards to, to institutional climates that promote children and young people's safety, both from feeling unsafe and from some of these risks that that have emerged over time. I think it's really about looking at how we support children and young people to play a part in their own protection because I think a lot of children and young people, it's interesting with with work that we did for the Royal Commission, a lot of children and young people felt that they didn't have much confidence in adults and organisations in preventing and responding to issues like abuse because they didn't see that adults were doing much. Adults weren't having these conversations with children and young people and were often implementing things without children and young people knowing about it. So they said, well, if we can't see it, if we can't experience it, if we can't take advantage of it, then 
is it really that helpful for us? And is, is it inspiring us in us a confidence that that adults and organisations are able to to deal with it? So, you know, for many years we've been pushing the the line that it's really important that if we do things for children and young people, they have to be aware of it if they're going to be able to, A, take advantage of it and feel more confident um, in that regard. So it's just a couple of thoughts around um, children's safety and some of the work that we've done. It's a really interesting idea to make it a child-centred response, isn't it, I mean, where these are sorts of things that we see coming up through uh, other public policy areas. Let's talk more explicitly about the pandemic. And uh, Karen, uh, could you let us know uh, what sorts of impacts you've seen for the pandemic on the mental health and wellbeing of children? There's quite a lot of discussion in the media about a severe impact from the coronavirus uh, experience, from lockdowns, from the from the virus, uh, and from the, the pandemic experience. What things are you seeing in in practice? So, building on what Tim was saying, I would. Um before I come back to answer your question, I would agree that we really need to centre the child's experience and we need to facilitate adults having conversations so that we can all talk about what's actually happening because I think there's a lot of denial and overlooking of what's going on in children's lives. And in regard to your question, I'm saying disconnection. I'm saying, um, and not I'm not going to talk about any of the people I've assessed directly, but just in what I'm saying overall, I'm seeing people feeling more isolated, feeling lonely. Um, if they not, if they don't have friends that live within their five-kilometre lockdown zone, they're struggling to have find someone to see face-to-face with their mask on to exercise with. And children need to be with each other much more than adults do. I think we've got much more capacity to connect virtually, to have kind of long-standing relationships and keeping people in mind and knowing that things go up and down over time. And children don't have that time context. And I have great concerns about the social development, particularly of the under fives and any young children at transition points. So kind of the transition from leaving home to go to childcare or kinder, leaving kinder or childcare to go to school, Um, the kids... Um, in Victoria that have been in lockdown last year and this year are struggling because they've, particularly at the transition points, they may have been in year six and now year seven or year seven and now year eight or year 11 and now year 12 or they're starting off in university or trying to get into the workforce, struggling that there's, you know, a lot of the opportunities have now gone that they would have had in the past to develop those skills. Um, And I don't think we're going to see the full effect on the children that the age group that I specialise in, the younger children, because of the latency effect of stress, the impact on neurobiology of living with what's really indefinite uncertainty at the moment for some children, um, particularly those who are separated from loved ones, and just the impact of the global grief, the level of cumulative stress. And some people have had direct trauma with family violence. Um, there's increased um adversity and pressure on families so that has a huge impact on parental mental health and relationship stability new parents don't have that network of supports that they can connect with to kind of learn about what's normal and be with each other and problem solve the kind of day-to-day difficulties that come up when you're trying to make sense of what's going on with your little baby so there's just a kind of a profound loss of support and I guess Looking at the work of the Anna Freud Centre, um, Peter Fronigy talked about trauma is kind of the mind in isolation. So that kind of support um, of networks, that, that social network that you have is really invaluable. So it's much harder for young people to maintain that um, in a way that adults can kind of supervise. Um, so normally you can kind of check out who your kids are socialising with and now with social media there's a whole – you don't actually know what's going on as much. You're nodding there, Tim. Did you want to – have you got any some ideas on that? Yeah, no, I think um, you're absolutely right and it's it's across the age um, range that lots of children and young people are feeling isolated. I think there was a report out today from Triple J Hack reporting on some data from Headspace that I think 54% of young people reported that they felt isolated and lonely, <clears throat> that they were experiencing this sense of, of complete um, – disconnection and that that was having a huge impact on their on their mental health and although you know we are talking about a generation who's incredibly 
connected online, we do know still that the the face-to-face interactions are, are so important um, for all of us. I've, I'm trying not to project, but you know, I think that uh, all of us have experienced Zoom <laughs> fatigue and um, going, okay, I'm seeing what people are doing on Facebook, but I'm not having those interactions that are so important for us all. So, no, I totally agree with you. Tim, we'll we'll take a short break in a in a moment. But before we do, I just wanted to ask you for your assessment of some of the the narrative that we have seen in the media, particularly, um, but also kind of discourse that, that experts have been engaging in uh, around the vaccine rollout and around where children fit within that. And you you referred to kind of child centred responses, and we also see within the literature the idea of child inclusive responses, which may not be putting children at the absolute centre of our decision making but ensuring that children are fully included and it, it strikes me that in some of the discourse we've seen about vaccines particularly children have been entirely excluded um, children uh, are, are not being included in the modeling younger children are not at this point able to, to to get vaccines but of course children hear these narratives and Tim I'd be really keen to hear your thoughts on how those what I would frame as exclusionary narratives are likely to be impacting on children's sense of well-being so as has been mentioned a couple of times I think when people feel powerless and disengaged you know their, their mental health but a whole range of other you know struggles um, are experienced and I think you know talking with with young people in a whole range of different settings they're going I'm not part of the conversation in fact adults are actively excluding me it was interesting I was speaking to a young person just recently who said you know right at the start of the the pandemic there were all those uh, protests around climate change and and governments were saying you know this isn't an issue for young people and they should be at school and they should be shutting up and they should be letting adults take control and and resolve these things but we were were frustrated and anxious because we couldn't see adults working in the way that we wanted them to and i think that she this young person i spoke to sort of likened it to to covid as well of saying that young people are sitting there going my life is seriously affected um, and I'm concerned that the effects are going to be long-lasting, that I'm going to inherit, you know, all these social and economic problems into the future. But people aren't asking me for my opinion, aren't asking for me about my priorities. And, in fact, you know, even in the, the rhetoric of the day, I'm being excluded. So when we talk about, you know, for example, the the targets for vaccinations, it's 80% or what have you of the, the population. But really when you unpack that, it's not the whole population, it's the population of adults. So children young people are going... <laughs> hang on a minute, are you saying that we're not citizens? Are you saying that we're not part of communities? And I think there's a, a real frustration about that amongst young people who are desperate to feel like they're contributing and desperate to feel like they're able to take some control over what's going on in their lives. And And I think we've, we've really isolated children and young people from those debates, and I think that's problematic. You know, I was watching Q&A just the other day. It was interesting, you know, even when we've had sessions where the, the the needs of children and young people have been flagged, often it's adult commentators who are doing that. Or when we have young people, it's it's generally 18 to 25-year-olds. We're not hearing from children, uh, let alone influent, infants, um, about what's going on for them and creating policies and roadmaps out of this that are very much driven by, by what children and young people um, want and need. I think that's the, the perfect point for us to take a short break and to come back after the break and start to look forward into the future about how we can shift some of these narratives and turn some of these challenges around. So listeners, don't go away. We will be back with Tim and Karen in just a minute. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Around the world... Democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. 
Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We're here with Karen Gaunson and with Tim Moore and talking about children's mental health and wellbeing and the impacts of, of COVID-19. Before the break, we were talking about the importance of child-centred approaches and genuinely including children. And we've been talking quite a bit about the ways in which children have often been failed by our public policies prior to and during the pandemic. Now let's turn to the future and talk about the ways in which we can create the kinds of supports the children need. Recently, Dr. Valsama Epen, the Chair of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists, said that the average age of children presenting with self-harm and other acute mental health issues is becoming younger. And of course, this is deeply disturbing. Karen, I wonder if you could share your thoughts with us on how we begin to turn this trend around, what our immediate priorities need to be, and also what are the some of the longer-term changes and perhaps where this idea of child-centredness fits into all of that. I would agree that the presentations and severity of mental health problems are occurring earlier and that's there's probably multiple factors for that, but typically um, the younger children who present with challenging behaviours and aggression towards self or other typically have a lot of difficulties with distress tolerance, frustration tolerance, self-soothing, um, regulating themselves or being co- what's called co-regulated, which is being um, soothed and comforted by an adult or another person. And they often have kind of a altered neurobiology of being in a fight-flight state or even a feign-collapse-faint-type state. Um, and that may be related to neurodiversity or it may be related to trauma and neglect or some kind of um, medical problem or acquired brain injury. So it's it's hard to know what's driving that. Um, children with more severe mental health problems can also develop that kind of fight-flight state as well. So essentially one way of trying to prevent um, things escalating to where someone's going to be injured um, and also helping to comfort someone's distress is really to understand what's causing the behaviour and what's driving that change and mitigate any stresses that they're having. Part of, you know, winding back to what Tim was saying before around the narrative not including children and being quite adult-centric, one of the things that we do clinically is we try to help caregivers, educators, um, people involved in the child's life understand the child. And there's a model called tuning into kids, which is and another model called kind of watch, wait and wonder or mentalization-based therapies. And what you're doing there is you're trying to help people think clearly, observe more accurately what's going on um, and separate out their own kind of assumptions or projections um, from what the child, what is actually going on for that child. So trying to be curious and interested and open to what the child's bringing to tell you and show you through their behaviour if they don't have words for their experience and then trying to validate their distress and then do something about it. So actually having a commitment to what the child needs rather than what you think they should need. And a part of my concern about the narrative in the media and in politics is it's too adversarial. Um, it generates a lot of conflict, in my opinion, and fear, and it sort of spreads anger and frustration across the community as opposed to building social trust, um, creating a space where people feel valued, where people feel seen and understood, where they can trust that their needs are going to be met and taken seriously. And, you know, at the moment we just get bombarded with terrible stories of things that are done to people and inquiries kind of confirming that and then a lack of action to actually prevent that. So I think, you know, that, that has a huge impact on anyone that cares about children. 
Tim, Sharon and I have had many conversations on the pod and elsewhere. This continues off and offline on the importance Mm. of caring. And uh, look, we've been trying to push our hashtag value caring because we think it really does help with all sorts of range of, of the policy challenges that we face both here in Australia and around the world. It's such an important issue for children, as described just then by Karen. You've done some incredible research with children who are young carers, and that turns assumptions about who cares on their head. Your research has pointed out the challenges that young carers face. Can you take us through some of those findings and how we might better support children who are caring for parents or others? Yeah, sure. Thank you. So, um, yes, a lot of my work with young carers, so these are children young people who are helping to care in a family affected by illness, disability, drug or alcohol, mental health issues. These are children, young people who go above and beyond what I suppose is expected of of children and young people these days. So, you know, we know that lots of children help with, you know, household chores and, and, um, you know, cooking and cleaning and the like. With young carers, often they're doing more often and often doing it unsupervised. We hear, you know, stories from children as young as five or six, you know, having to really watch out for their their mums and dads' behaviours to see if they're, you know, safe. Um, we've heard stories of, you know, kids having to restrain their parents during a, a psychotic episode or, or what have you. So it's kids who are, are doing some fairly significant things um, because they're f- often because the family's not getting enough support um, and therefore the, the responsibilities are placed on children. Kind of when we're thinking about care with all children and young people, we want to instil in them a... a opportunity to care about their relatives rather than care for. So when we're caring for um, children, young people are are taking on significant uh, responsibilities and those impacts can be quite great. So again, sort of leaping back to some of the conversations before, say in regards to education, we know that lots of children, young people who are caring, particularly those who are caring for a, a sole parent or multiple siblings with with significant disability a lot of them are missing out on school they when they're at school they find it difficult to to relax and to really be attuned to what's going on you know I remember one story of a of a kid um, reporting that you know every time a, an ambulance went past his his schoolroom he'd have a freak out because he thought you know what's going on at home his mum's safe um, is she going to be okay so a lot of children young people in those scenarios, you know, have got a whole lot of challenges to their experiences. They, they're often quick to point out how caring has been a positive experience for them, that they they feel like they're able to, to care for these people that they care about, that they, you know, have learnt all these new skills and are able to probably cope with things that they think that their, their peers might not be able to. But often because those families aren't getting the support that they need, you know, these challenges are exacerbated. So it's kind of been interesting. We, we've been looking at whether or not um, caring has actually increased for, for young people. And anecdotally, we're hearing that a lot of siblings, particularly of, of children with disability, are having to take up more responsibilities in COVID times, particularly in lockdowns, um, because parents are having to juggle, you know, work and caring responsibilities. And and also the the, the child, the young carer isn't getting the respite from that caring experience, which things like school and and the like um, offer to them. So on top of the stresses and strains of living with COVID, um, the responsibilities that children and young people are taking on are are increasing. Um, And it's often because families, for whatever reason, aren't able to get that external support that they had before. So for example, in the AFES survey recently, 30% of people with disability reported that they wanted and needed more support from the NDIS providers and, and external parties but just weren't able to get it. Um, so we're seeing an increased care need but a reduction in the, the provision of those types of services, which is having an effect on, on the whole family um, but children and young people in particular. Tim, I think that's so interesting and so important and it goes again, to that issue of how child-centred we are or how child-inclusive we are because we have heard a lot about the impacts of COVID on the caring roles of adults and particularly women, which has been so significant. But we hear almost nothing about the impacts on children um, who were caring before the pandemic and who have, whose loads have increased. 
Karen, I, I wanted to, to draw you back into the conversation here around care. And, of course, as Tim points out, many children themselves undertake care. But care is also incredibly important for children to receive from those people who are around them. And if all, in all of the research that I've done, children talk about how they value care and connectedness. And they often also talk about how the pressures of work in particular but also the inability to find secure work, the pressure to comply with welfare conditionality often prevents parents from being present in their lives, both physically and emotionally. And Karen, I wonder if if you could share your thoughts with us on how we can start to think differently about care as a society so that care starts to become an essential, a normal and a necessary part of our lives and so the care for children is seen as something that's valuable. Yes, I really agree with that framing. I think care is actually what needs to be at the core of our society. Um, There's a lot of research showing that parental stress really impacts on their capacity to tune in or what's called their attunement, their ability to resonate with how a child is emotionally. And it can you know, very severe levels of stress can lead to the relationship breaking down and disconnecting and people withdrawing and missing each other's cues and not connecting at all. Um, And that has profound impacts on the child's development as well as the relationship over time and whether that child's going to come to that parent for comfort. So for a parent to be able to be caring towards a child, they, once again, coming back to that kind of concept of having a network of kind minds around them that are going to nurture and care for them and model for them how to be caring. So part of the problem in our society is we often see people being promoted that don't have a caring disposition, appear to even be ruthless perhaps, um, and to be kind of competitive and putting them that kind of individualistic way of being versus kind of that collectivistic justice of, you know, that we are interconnected. So there's all these kind of narratives that go on that I don't think are helpful. And one of them, you know, when people say we're all in this together, well, we actually are and we need to be, but we need to recognise that some people are doing it much, much harder and those people need targeted support. They shouldn't be being scapegoated. So that's one key message that I'd like to say. Um, other emotive narratives that I think are really unhelpful is the COVID generation and the mental tsunami. I'd like to see a shift to kind of a concept of how do we support children to bounce um, forward rather than bouncing back. We need to invest in children now. We need to identify those children that are disengaged at the moment. We need to know which children the teachers haven't seen for a while. Where are they? Why aren't they turning up to online schooling? Um And I was really pleased also to see um, in Victoria, we had the chief psychiatrist, Neil Coventry, who I've known for a long time. He's a child psychiatrist. And Rick Haslam, the director of um, mental health at the Children's, who's a paediatrician, both at one of the presses. So I'd really like to see, and the New South Wales chief psychiatrist did a great job too, Um, just kind of bringing that focus back to how do we speak to children? How do we keep children in mind? How do we um, meet their needs at such a profoundly difficult time? Because children have made a sacrifice that they haven't actually agreed to. Like under fives don't, some of them don't know any other life. They don't have any narrative memories of what it was like before. So I think this is one of the key challenges that we all face, isn't it? We've got a a, a global narrative and the the phrase that you used at the beginning, Karen, of the global grief that we all are experiencing with whichever crisis we choose to look at, be it climate change or, or be it the coronavirus pandemic. And I think one of the challenges that's faced by many children at the moment is the multiple crises that they're experiencing either directly or that they're watching play out around them. Fires, floods, weather events, the crisis of the climate emergency or the global pandemic. How do we flip the narrative? How do we give ourselves and our children a sense of optimism and hope at such a challenging time? I think we we need to have hope ourselves. And if we're making tangible actions, we're showing them that we care. So that would be my first message to people. Do what you can, engage, don't be apathetic and turn to people who are modelling the way that you want to be and connect with those people. Tim, what are your thoughts on hope? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. My mind goes sort of in one of two directions. The first, I think, and I've been reflecting on, although, you know, 
COVID has been so unsettling. There's been some really lovely things that have come out for those of us who are in, in lockdown and, you know, as a community, I think more broadly. You know, it's it's nice to see, you know, this, the interactions that are happening amongst neighbours um, and neighbourhoods, these little collectives that are popping up, you know, Facebook pages where people from the suburb are saying if anyone, you know, has been hit by by you know unemployment or what have you that, that we've opened up these these little community hubs where people can come for food or where people can reach out and support each other so it's sort of been interesting to see how a sense of neighborhood and community has re-emerged um during during these times um my hope is that we can connect or continue with those um into the future that that we're we're moving on from a, a, a place where you may wave at a neighbour, you know, every couple of months to checking in and, you know, dropping off a cherry pie or a, a casserole or, or what have you, which is what we're seeing um, now. I think that on the other hand, you know, as you said, there's a whole lot of global things that are, that are going on that are impacting on children and young people who are often bombarded with the news on their on their phones and social media and what have you about issues like climate change and um, and the like, where children and young people I think are, are becoming overwhelmed and are experiencing this ontological insecurity where they don't necessarily have faith in not only their relationships but more so the 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 systems and structures that are around them. When there's instability and when things are unpredictable, when they don't believe that things can get better that's when people experience almost this existential dread so it's about saying okay how can we send messages to children young people that that yes there are problems and yes there's some real challenges that are, are in front of us that we and you need to confront but at the same time there's some th- things that we can learn from each other that we um, can see the best in each other and be hopeful for um, for the future, I think we need to have those conversations and have those conversations publicly, so that children, and young people, are exposed to hopefulness and optimism rather than just doom and gloom. This has been such an important conversation and a conversation that that we need to to, to take further and issues that we need to talk so much more about. But sadly, we're we're going to have to draw to a close for now. We'd like to wrap up these conversations by asking our guests for their number one or their favourite piece of policy advice. Not always an easy thing, but um, if if each of you had just one recommendation for policymakers to put us on the path to better mental health and to better wellbeing for children, what would that piece of advice be? Karen, could we start with you? Well, I'm you? not trained in policy, but I did went, go to an inspiring talk at WAME Congress. Um, the president of Yakapat, Professor Fung, who talked about how he's creating a sustainable ecosystem in Singapore and he had really wonderful slides and a lot of evidence supporting that and that really inspired me. And Tim, what would your piece of policy advice be? Yeah, so children and young people have, have told us that really they want to build alliances with adults um, across the policy and practice spectrum, that they want to to feel like they're being listened and, and heard, that they're able to, you know, shape and reshape adults' thinking um, and together come up with new solutions. That's maybe a little Pollyanna um, but for in regards to concrete things. You know, I think um, implementing things like um, child impact statements would would fundamentally reshift some of the focus so that adults actually need to think about how decisions that are being made, how policies that are being developed and implemented are actually affecting the, the day-to-day experience of, of children and young people. So keeping children and young people in mind and wherever possible getting feedback from children and young people about how some of these things are actually influencing their place in the world and their sense of, of safety and security. Tim, I, I think that's a great point and I don't think your first point was Pollyanna-ish at all. I think 
seeing children as full members of our society who are entitled to be included, to be respected and treated with dignity is fundamentally important. So I, I give that one a big tick. But um, for now, we, we will close this conversation. We hope to have you both back at some other point to take some of these issues further. Tim Moore, Karen Gunston, thank you so much for joining us on the pod today. Thanks, so Thanks much. guys. That was great. Anna Greta, I found that to be such an important conversation. You know, the work that both Karen and, and Tim are doing, I think, is just so critical in helping us to think through some of the challenges that children and young people are facing. Um, and I do think that through the past 18 months, while we've talked about some of the challenges of, of schools being in lockdown in some parts of Australia, we haven't sufficiently focused on the way in which children are impacted. And we haven't really paid attention to those challenges that were facing so many children in Australia and that were facing our society prior to the pandemic and how they've been exacerbated. And I think this speaks to the fact that in Australia, we do not have a child-centred society. We don't think about children in a way that's fully inclusive. They tend to be on the margins and they tend to get lost in policy and political debates. And I think this conversation just highlighted how we need to bring children into the centre. Absolutely. And I, look, I think part of the conversation actually is what the benefits are to society more broadly when we do that. Uh, we're all processing, I think, what Karen described as global grief and the cumulative stress associated with coronavirus. And we see that across the spectrum of age from very young children through to the very elderly. And I think being able to shift our narrative to give hope back to our families, particularly through younger children, is a really, really powerful narrative. So I've, I've learned a lot from today's conversation. Look, I agree. And I think, you know, I really love the work that Tim Moore does because it is about uh, children's participation and engaging directly with children. And I think that message of hope has to be to families and with families, but it also needs to be a message that is given directly to children in language that makes sense and that they can understand. And I think we, we really need to think about how we do have these conversations with children. And, you know, Anna Greta, I was also thinking about the final episode of um, our work series and that wonderful conversation with John Fowlson and Lyndall Strasden and Lyndall's point about the importance of time and the importance of time between parents and children. And I think that's part of this issue that we have to, as we keep saying, value caring. And we need to think about the importance of time and how time helps to, to manage that, that grief and that cumulative stress that you talk about. Absolutely, Sharon. Value caring again. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us again on this for this great topic today and the conversations around it. A reminder to you that if this episode has raised any concerns or issues for you, that there are links to support services in our show notes. We would love to hear from you, get some feedback on the episode, uh, and we really like to engage with our listeners through a variety of different platforms. You can reach out to us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or Apps Policy Forum. You can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net and you can find us on Facebook. We have a, a group called Policy Forum Pod and we welcome your entry into that conversational space. We'd love you to subscribe to our podcast and to leave a review on whichever platform you're pod with and we, we do read them and take them seriously. We'll be back next week with another episode, but for now, it's bye-bye from me, Anna Greta Hunter. And from me, Sharon Bissell, bye-bye for now.